hey, don't let her know that I'm telling you guys this, but it really is her fault. Uh-oh, here she comes. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. This is Jason. And Amanda. And we are here to apologize for Amanda's mistake this week. No, you can apologize for your mistake. No, this isn't my mistake. This one is yours. This is all you. Oh, no. You do all the tech stuff. It's hey, on you. Hey, yeah, that's it. I do all the tech stuff. It's your job to remember when the important milestones are. That's not my job. Well, you know, it happens. All right, guys. Well, we done messed up. Epic fail. Last week, we hit a big milestone, and we totally missed it. So we want to do a little bit of celebrating here this week. 100. 100 episodes, which means today you're going to hear episode 101. We don't normally number our episodes, and so it wasn't until I went back and looked at some of the stuff on the back end, I realized we had missed it. And, well, we wouldn't have got here if we didn't have somebody listening and somebody commenting and talking. And... It's you guys. Yeah, it's our listeners out there. That's the reason we do this. Because we want to help encourage people to get involved in foster care and raise some awareness and maybe help some kids out. Yeah, so thank you guys. Yeah, because we have had, I'd tell you exactly how many lessons we've had, but I haven't looked at it in a while. It's quite a few. We're well over 20,000 different views or listens or downloads, whatever you want to call it these days. So we, we just wanted to say thanks, guys, and celebrate a little bit with us about um, hitting a big milestone this week. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. Today we have Chanel Dupree with us. How are you doing today, Chanel? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me, Jason and Amanda. We appreciate you coming on and talking with us today. You know, I, I was looking through some of your bio information and that's a long bio. <laughs> you woman. <laughs> I don't remember half of it. I, <laughs> I understand that feeling. That's yeah, that is my life. Some days, yeah, I work at a company that gave me a shirt with my name on it. I think they know something about where my mind's at most days because they put my name so I don't get lost. I keep that reminder. I appreciate that. <laughs> right. Good. No, I appreciate it. So, well, how did you get involved in the foster care and adoption world? Yeah, so um, I would say that I knew at a young age that I was going to be involved in the law, and um, I wasn't quite sure kind of what area. And so once I got into law school, I began taking all these different classes and ultimately took a family, a children and family law class and fell in love with it. And if I'm honest, like thinking about the actual reason why I was drawn to it, it's probably because three out of the four of my grandparents were raised by someone else. So both of my grandmothers were raised by their grandmother and my grandfather was raised um, by actually distant cousins. And so, um, you know, taking care of children who don't necessarily have that, that structure that we're, that we're used to seeing is something that I've just been 
drawn to. My parents are excellent and great, but they make mistakes. And I think about just at any moment, if one of those mistakes would have, could have <laughs> came to the attention of the wrong person, um, uh, where could I have been? And so I do it because I think the thing in my gut says that everyone needs an advocate. Everyone needs someone to make sure that we're paying attention. And so um, just my family history kind of drew me towards towards working with kids. Um, so I went to law school and then I um, enrolled in the clinic and uh, in the clinic, in the legal clinic, my last year in law school, I was actually able to work as a guardian ad litem and attend court and um, work with families. And I handled like a domestic violence situation. And so I was just really drawn towards that world. So, yeah, that's why I started. Yeah. I see that you had a, a lot of experience with the, uh, with being things like a guardian ad litem, I imagine that has to, if, you, if you're not from the foster care system, that has to be a bit of an eye-opening experience. Yeah, you'll, you definitely see, you see so many different, um, you see so many different things and you meet so many different families um, who, some of them you feel like, man, they just, they've never had everything perhaps that they may have needed. Um and then others, you think, how did they get here? Um, and there's so many different ways that families can end up in the foster care system. I was a guardian at Lightham, not just for kids who were in the foster care system, but also for high conflict divorce cases or paternity cases. And so whenever, you know, the judge really needed someone to speak for the child, um, that's when they'll appoint a guardian at Lightham to advocate for their best interest. So how do you, how do you do that when you, you know, because primarily talk about foster care and adoption, but I can only imagine that's a lot more difficult when you, when you're dealing with some of those situations where it's, it's a divorce and you probably have, in my experience, two people who are probably thinking about behaving badly. So I always say that at the end of the case, if both parents aren't insanely upset at me, then I've done something wrong. <laughs> so uh, I what I always do, though, is I always meet spend time with both parents. So I spend time with both parents because they're the closest to the child. So I'll have just an individual had I don't do this anymore, but I would have individual meetings with the child or excuse me, with the parents in their respective settings, wherever they were comfortable. And then I would ask for them to make me a list of who do you want me to talk to? Who's connected to this child? Who should I be speaking with? And then I would talk with everyone on their list, whether it's teachers, aunts, uncles, cousins, whoever, just so the parents feel and understand that I understand that you have the primary understanding of what's happening. Um, and then I would uh, spend time and talk with the, the children of course, depending upon the age, but I would meet with the child usually at least three different times, once in the mom's home, once in the dad's home, and then once kind of in a neutral setting, just to see if they would say the same thing, if they would feel the same way. And sometimes where they were absolutely influenced their thoughts and their perspectives. And so that's definitely something to take note of. I remember one time I, um, met with a, I was appointed a guardian at Lightham and I met with the child at school and the parents, they just, they were cats and dogs, always fighting, always making accusations. 
And uh, the mom was like, he called the people on me. And the dad was like, he called the people on me. And I get to the school and I'm talking to the principal and she's like, I call the people on them (laughs) because they're crazy. (laughs) And someone needs to be looking out for this child. (laughs) So it's a, it can, it's a high, it's an intense job, which is why it's not something that I'm still doing anymore. Just working that directly with, with families. Well, I understand that for sure. I know one of the things that we've experienced is some of the, a lot of the cases we had, I'd say probably closer to most saw uh, the, the guardian items would see the kids in court and that was it. Mm. And that really bothered us to some extent, because how can you be speaking up for the best interest of these kids? For all you know, I have got a wall with dog cages that I lock kids in at night in my house, yeah. you know, or, or the parents could be, you know, manufacturing methamphetamines because here in the middle of Missouri, that's apparently a hobby that a lot of people have these days. <laughs> and um, a hobby, huh, Jason? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's getting to that level here, here in our area, I think, oh, you know, scary. so, you know, but I mean, all kinds of stuff could be going on that they really don't even know about. Yeah. So let me talk about um, kind of a different perspective. Um, so I, I absolutely like, I have heard that. I get it. I understand it. But the other piece in that is that guardian ad litems, if they have been, if this is like what they do, then they may have a hundred cases. So they may have a hundred cases. So they have a hundred families that they're navigating and not even just family. I mean, it could be, it's going to be more than a hundred kids, right? If they have a hundred cases. And so, and those children may not be placed in the same place. Uh, so uh, the, I think the what is expected and the workload and the expectation sometimes don't don't line up um, because I don't know if our society does a great job of valuing this type of law and this type of practice. And so um, so I know that a lot of guardian ad litems at times they'll rely on the caseworker or they'll rely on the CASA. We love CASAs, right? CASAs are amazing because CASAs, the the special thing about CASAs, court-appointed special advocate, is they just have one family. They just have one case and they are able to connect with that child at least once a week. That's the expectation. And what the data shows is that if a child has a CASA, they're more likely to be reintegrated with their parents. If they're not reintegrated, they're more likely to be adopted. If they're not adopted, they're more likely not to age out of the system. And so we know that that connection and that contact is so important. But the way that our system is overloaded um, and folks are over overworked and underpaid, it feels like it's just not sustainable. And so I get it. But there's a reason for that. The reason why. Um, you know, maybe some guardian items aren't seeing their kids in the environment that they should, but they really should be. They should be seeing their kids um, in their environments. Um, but yeah, it's just the practical, how do you make that happen with hundreds of families that you're, that you're working with? Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash foster care nation. Now back to the show. 
So it sounds like the problem is most likely more systematic rather than just having having met a, a lazy guardian. It's it's probably more a systematic issue that they just don't have that bandwidth. Both. Um, I think in any profession you'll find lazy folks. Um, so let me let me not say that every guardian at litem is a good one. No, there are absolutely terrible guardian at litems. Um, but yes, uh, to your point, it is systematic in a way. It's uh, just like caseworkers. I mean, I'm I'm a, uh, what am I? An administrator at a child placing agency now, and I look at our workers and I'm like, there's a reason why the turnover is the way that it is because it's it's so you have to have a passion. You have to know that this is what you're supposed to be doing because at times the work can be thankless. And so there has to be more than just thanks <laughs> because most people, you know, don't, you won't, you caseworkers aren't going to get told thank you necessarily when they're in these high intense uh, situations. So they, they definitely have to, they have to know that it's a calling and there's a reason why they're doing what they're doing, but yeah, it's systematic. Absolutely. Yeah, I know right now in our area, the, the problem is is really, really bad with caseworkers. Um, counting next to ours, I believe, is down to two caseworkers. And one of the guys I work with at my regular job, his wife is a caseworker out there. And I want to say she had something like like 20-something hotlines that she had to go. They were all sitting on her desk because there was only two people there. They would split the, the load. It's like 48 hotline calls that had come in. And I mean, let's just be honest. A hotline call is going to take longer than than what you can do in, in an hour or two. That's a that's a lot of hours of work on top of our regular workload. So, you know, that, that's understandable where where you you know workers are, are covered up and guardians are covered up, and it's it's a difficult a difficult place to be. And unfortunately, the kids who are who are stuck in the middle through no fault of their own are usually the ones who are getting getting the the, the bad end of that stick. Yeah, I mean, I'm. That's why I'm such an advocate of prevention. Um, I'm such an advocate of, you know, there's a quote that it's so much easier to heal a child than a grown man. I mean, it's just like, if we can just deal with the root issue, if we could deal with the root cause, because the system is not a good parent. You know, there are so many different people involved and so many different aspects to this thing. If you can work with families before they get into the system, um, then the ones that really, really, really need to be here, we can focus all our energy and attention on those kids. Um, but there, sometimes there's there's families that are involved that should not be involved. They they just needed, you know, services put into the home or whatever the case may be. But sometimes the removing of a child adds even more trauma to the entire family um, than if we just could have worked with the family where they were. Oh, absolutely. Every, every time a child leaves their home, that's trauma, yep. you know, for the child and everybody else in the process. Yeah. You know, but unfortunately our system is really broken right now and we're in a crisis and our children are suffering. Yeah. I would agree with that. And, you know, I'll say this, I listened to, um, of course, some of your episodes and just loved your origin stories and um, why you all started um, doing this. And I think that people who like have real, real life experiences, <laughs> they come they come into this work with an understanding um, that people aren't perfect and that you all are 
your tools, right? You're being used to to work with families and to and to help children um, from where they are. So thank you for your services that you all have been giving for years, years upon years. Well, thank we, you. <laughs> we've learned more for, from some of these kids than we'll ever be able to give back. So I feel like in a lot of ways, we're just, we're just paying the debt back to some of these kids, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I tell this story often, but you know, it comes down to the the one evening we had a, our very first foster placement who is have, have now been adopted for many, many years here. But um, when our little girl, Janiah sat down at the dinner table and, and I'd had a rough day at work. I came home. I was kind of, let's be honest. I was kind of acting like a little whiny kid. And <laughs> she said, I want to say blessing. I said, okay, so let's say blessing before we get, before we eat dinner. And she bows her little head and folds her little hands. And she says, dear God, thank you that my new mommy and daddy haven't died yet. Amen. Whoa. Right. Suck the wind out of your sails. Yeah. Yeah. Here I am over here trying to feel sorry for myself because work was tough. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I heard you, God. <laughs> Perspective, right? Kind of just yeah. refocus yeah. you. Yeah. And she was probably what, maybe four years old at the time? No, she was three. Was she three still? Yeah. Little girl. So young girl to be she able to say that. Too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She still is. Oh, yeah. She's still my little girl. Don't tell her I said that. She's 13. <laughs> she'll get mad at me. <laughs> You know, it, it, it kind of reminds me of something that happened to me. Um, I was at a parent-teacher conference with my daughter, and um, we had just went through a pretty rough two years. Um, both of their, uh, my husband's, both of his parents died um, unexpectedly within like 15 months apart. And they were such a major support for our, our family. And so my daughter, though, she's always like on it. She's the straight A. She does really well. Well, the teacher, I went to a parent teacher and the teacher had uh, all the children to write down something that no one would ever think to know, but you wanted to share. And so she wrote, um, I, I just want to say that, you know, life is really good, but sometimes I get sad and sometimes I cry because I lost my grandparents, um, but I'll be okay. And it just... And it's like when when something big happens, you don't talk about it every day. You talk about it, but it's not like something that you always talk about. And it's not like, I, of course, I hadn't forgotten, but sometimes I think we forget how it affects our kids, um, how these these big events and sometimes the little events, how it stays with them. And it's just it can be like a, a jolt when it when you're when we're reminded of the fact that, yeah, they get sad and this this is still affecting them. So. I agree. They teach us so much. Yeah, and if you if you have ears to hear, you'll uh you'll learn a lot from a toddler because mm. they have no filter. Let's <laughs> <laughs> you like it is. Yeah, mine have no filter. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, especially when you're in hardware stores. <laughs> yeah. Hardware stores. What is yeah, that about? It's a story. I'm trying. I can't remember <laughs> what it was, but I, I'm I remember something being said recently. <laughs> um, turtle read the guys. Um, name back. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You remember. Yeah. I do vaguely remember. Yeah. He, he, uh, <laughs> I had, I had talked before we went in the store, but I tried to call the, the store. It was one of the big box stores mm-hmm. and, um, it took me forever to get a live human. The guy goes to find the answer to my question and then I get hung up on. I'm aggravated. Kind of, 
Sam the phone down. I was like, I'll just go in there and ask him when I get in there. And then we do our thing and we get up to the front counter and he, he looks at the guy and reads the guy's name tag. He's, 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 uh, he's first grade. He's, he's learned to read things out in public now. And he just reads the guy's name tag and the guy says, yeah, what can I, and, and he looks at him. I forget what it was. He said to the guy, um, and the guy was just kind of teasing him a little bit. He was, it was nothing, nothing inappropriate, but after what I had said in the car, he turns to me, puts his hands in front of his mouth, like he's whispering to me and very, very loudly says, I see what you're saying about these people, dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You learn to have no chill and they'll, they'll, they'll call you out in public. They'll, yeah, yeah but the lessons we've learned through some of that has been some of the best, you know, some of the most impactful lessons, especially some of those, those perspective things. When, when I feel like it's, it's tough on me, not realizing what hard is for some people, you know, yeah. uh, after we had spent several months in the children's hospital with one of our, with our oldest daughter, um, I, I now have a newfound respect for any precocious little, little four-year-old girl with, you know, riding a wa- around in a wagon, at the uh, at the entrance of Children's Hospital, yeah. just ask her a question sometime, and just you'll be um, you'll be amazed the wisdom that will come out of her mouth because mm-hmm. you know she may not have any hair left, but I promise you she's got something to say because of the life she's lived. Absolutely. And a lot of these kids are living with that 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 damage inside their soul, mm-hmm. and you can't see it, mm-hmm. but it's there. Yeah, yeah, it's um, you know I, I feel like we're learning so much more about trauma and the effects that it has and um, how it it continues to show up if we don't address it and if it's not something that we're paying attention to. But yeah, and all these moments, right, are traumatic for kids when they're when they're removed, when they're separated from their siblings. I mean, there's data that shows that kids being separated from their siblings is if not as or even more traumatic than them being separated from their parents. And so um yeah, like all these moments, all these moments that we have to begin to pay attention to just as people who are working in the system. Yeah. And I, I think you're right as, as far as the siblings go, because that's in some of the cases we've seen this, the only stability a kid may have had in their entire life is that sibling has been able to bounce from home to home with them. They spent more time with their siblings than they have with the parents. Yep. And that shared, those shared experiences are something else. I mean, my siblings and I, we can, we have so many inside jokes. Like we, we just, I mean, when you grow up with someone, there's just, no one else has that experience. And so I was listening to your very last podcast where the uh, very young lady, <laughs> I think has like nine kids in her home. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. I yeah. will not be overwhelmed for her, <laughs> but I was very overwhelmed. I'm like, bless her. <laughs> bless her soul. So. So, yeah. Well, it's a good thing you're from Kansas and not from the South, because if you say bless her heart in the South, that means something totally different. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it does. No, I'm, I'm Midwest through and through, through and through. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I know it's, it's so important to keep siblings together. We have always, you know, if, if we get a phone call, it's all or nothing, you know, because it is so important for those bonds, especially at that moment. Yeah. You know, because there's always the kiddo that was the caregiver that took care of everybody else. That was mom and dad. You know, you've got the little ones and 
I have a little one right here. <laughs> He's trying to be see himself on camera. Oh yeah. He's... He needs the hair needs he, some help. It's, he it's, loves his hair. <laughs> it's been going for a while. It needs to be moisturized. But yeah. If you if you have uh, heard any of our early episodes with standing with Turtle, um, this is Turtle here. He's uh Hi. he is our little guy here. Hi. I love your hair. <laughs> sorry but yeah that's one of the things that we have found though is the importance of those siblings as we walk through through that whole process you know is um and i would assume that's part of the the role the guardian ad litem is to keep track of things like that oh yeah yeah absolutely um that has to that has to be on the forefront um it's all things it's you know how do we how do we navigate this child through this system, through this process with the least amount of trauma as possible, right? How do we, and how, if as they're going through, can we add pieces of joy and memories that they'll cherish, right? And so it's it's thinking through those things um, and understanding that every decision matters um, as they're as they're going through it. So it's not just a case, it's a family, it's a child. And um, after they age out, whatever status they're in, whether they're in an adoptive home or whether they reintegrate with their parents, they're going to remember this. They're going to remember this. Absolutely. They are, you know, and for us, well, for us, a lot of the kids that we've had may not remember us a bit, Mm -hmm. you know, and I've learned through some of the work that I've read of Karen Purvis's, you know, that, the brain doesn't forget, right? Like, like that trauma, there, there's real physical damage. It occurs in the brain when the trauma happens, but they may not remember the details, yep. but I promise you, if you're, if you're more of that trauma, if you cause more trauma, more damage, the brain's going to remember that too. And you're going to have those problems. That's why I think a lot of times people are staggered at the numbers of kids that, that leave foster care, who age out, who end up homeless oh, or in jail. Oh yeah. Uh, homeless, not graduating, not going to college, young ladies are more likely to be pregnant, um, more likely to end up incarcerated. And so I think that really speaks to how important connections are, healthy connections are. And when a child ages out of the foster care system without those established connections, uh, just think about you and I, and Amanda, when we were 17, 18, we were crazy. Like we, we didn't have good sense. <laughs> we thought we had good sense, <laughs> but you need someone who is going to kind of yank your chain and say, Hey, Hey, remember who you are. Right. Remember, remember that, you know, don't make decisions that are going to impact you forever. Right. So it's like not having that stability is it matters. It really does matter. And I feel like we're seeing that more and more. That's why we have some, some, you know, some great organizations that are doing some really impactful things for kids who are aging out of the system um, and more foster parents who are focused towards that sector. Because what we've seen, especially as a, you know, working in the system, everyone wants the baby, but no one wants the 16 year old. Um, And the baby's easy, (laughs) you know, the baby's easy to place. Um, but it's that 16 year old who has likely been traumatized their entire life and may have some behaviors. And so who's there for them. And so, um, 
there's a lot of work I think that's being done to really pay attention to that sector of kids. So yeah, um, I think you know something that we've talked about a little bit offline is just racial equity and how that uh, kind of impacts the child welfare system and you know, black and brown kids are more likely to end up in the system. And once their experience in the system is worse, so they're moved more, um, they're, they get less, you know, their uh, therapy and medications are, aren't attended to with the same type of care, and they're more likely to age out of the system. And so it's a, I, I don't want to call it an epidemic, but it's a it is an epidemic because it's happening in all 50 states. So it's not something that just Kansas is doing wrong or Missouri is doing wrong. Like we're all doing it wrong. It's something that we haven't talked about enough. Um, and so that's why I'm really excited that I know my, um, where I'm working, it's something that we're talking about more, which is important. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook and you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. We've got a group over there where we talk about foster care, we talk about adoption, and we talk about all the things related. If your podcast player allows it, you can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. We'd love to see you next week. Now back to the show. Yeah, that's something that I've noticed, and it's it's probably worse in most urban areas than it is in more rural areas, just because of the population density. There is so many more people there, and and if you know, there's a certain part of, portion of the population that should be in foster care that are not, because they just don't get seen. Mm-hmm. You know, and Amanda's a great example of that. You know, her I know her backstory very well, and she she should have been in the system when she was a kid and was not. But if, you know, if it's the same percentage of kids still, you've got, you know, the difference between the little town that she grew up in versus, you know, the population density of St. Louis or, or Kansas city, like that's a lot of kids who are getting left out in the cold to raise themselves more or less through trauma. Yeah. So what I would say, well, I guess I'm actually curious, Amanda, what do you, what do I'm not interviewing you, but I am interested (laughs) on the the statement that your husband just made about that you should have been in the system. Like looking back, is that something that, what are your thoughts on that after having like, you all have been involved in the system? Yeah, no, honestly, um, I needed to be in the system and so did my siblings. Wow. Instead, I ended up raising my siblings and I, and still to this day, I, I don't have a normal relationship with my siblings. I have a motherly role with my siblings. You know, one of my siblings called me mom when he was little and he went everywhere with me. And at 13 years old, people's parents thought I had a son Wow, because I was mom, you know, and I would have to walk to the churches, to the food pantries and get the cream of celery soup to heat up for my brothers for dinner that night, because that's what we had. Mm. You know, there were a lot of drugs. There were a lot of men involved in, you know, there's a lot of trauma there. And that was part of the reason, you know, that me and Jason went on the journey that we are on is because children deserve better than that. Yeah. And they deserve a voice. And there were a few people that did step in and out of my childhood that I am internally grateful for. You know, they, they really did help, but 
we needed services that we did not receive. Mm. So, and, and you, you made the statement about services. And so what I'm, you know, really interested is in those, right, the prevention services, the, but at the same time, understanding that some people really don't want to do better, right? Some people don't oh, want to do better, but there are some people who do. And I, I guess I'm, I'm really interested in how we can keep those folks out of the system, how we can ensure that the people who are wanting to do better have the services that they need. And absolutely. And my, and my mother was not someone who wanted those services. And still to this day, she does not want those services. So our relationship is at this moment, we don't have a relationship, you know, because still to this day, things have not changed and there's not a whole lot of, I'm, I want to change or that even I'm doing anything wrong. Yeah. You know, so now that we have our own children, I have to protect my children, Yeah. you know? And so, yeah, but there are families out there that do want the services and they're, t- a lot of them are just too afraid to reach out because they have, they're afraid that if they reach out, they're not going to have their children. Oh, and it happens. They're so afraid of the system. And some of them with very good reason. You know, we have an interview. I think it's coming out um, here in about, oh, not this coming Tuesday, but the following one, which will be about the 27th of April. Mm -hmm. And it's um, with a lady named Tamara Sip. And Tamara tells her story. And her kids were pulled into the system. And she fought and fought and fought. And it had a whole lot to do with the fact that, you know, the relationship she was in, was volatile and she was trying to take care of her kids on her own at that point. And she was a nurse. She was a a registered LPN or an RN. I forget now, but the hours she had to work and her kids, she had no, no services to help her with childcare. You know, she didn't because of her her situation with her, her significant other, she didn't have any, uh, any real support mechanism behind her to help her out. And that's why her kids ended up getting pulled into care. Not because she was, intentionally neglecting them yeah, so she, she could go out not and, a bad mother yeah you know, she's not trying to go out and smoke you know smoke crack on yeah. uh, on friday nights she's out taking care of people so she can get paid so she can feed her kids and it was one of those situations where she would have really benefited from some services you know oh, her children would have never been traumatized the way that they were it breaks my heart because i mean i can tell story after story there was one situation there were there were a few that I've been directly involved with, but there was one that went, that was um, on national news and I commented on it where this young lady, this young mom was arrested at her job because she had left her two children, it's like ages nine and maybe four in a hotel room. Um, And she was arrested. She was booked and the children were, you know, given to whomever they were given to. And I posted, you know, this would have been a great opportunity for our social services to have been involved with this, this mom, because you have a mom who they didn't find out on the street. You found her at her job. She worked at a pizza shop um, at Domino's. She had irregular uh, office. She had irregular hours. So babysitting, right. That makes it difficult to find childcare. And when they interviewed her, this is what she said. She said, I had a system. Someone would come and they would check on the kids once an hour. um, And then I would call. um, And my mom did it with us. So I thought it was okay. 
right? And so sometimes when you're in that cycle, when you when you're just doing what you know to do to survive, then you're doing the best that you can. And what this young mom really needed was a stable place to live because she's in a motel. Um, she needed childcare. Um, so she needed someone that could really help support her in the situation that she was in. And so it was something because that community, once they found out about it, they ended up like raising all this money and she got a house and she got a car. And so, you know, they helped support her. But I'm like, man, that that that's not good. That's a child care issue. That's not a parenting issue. Absolutely. And for how many years did those kids suffer? Because the community took notice at that moment when it made big news. Yeah. But how many people knew about that before? And and nobody had taken the time to to help her out in those moments before it became a national news story. Yep. Well, and, and the one thing I can say is, is in for Missouri, I can't say for all states, but for Missouri, if those children would have come into care and they would have called us. I would have said, well, in order for us to take these children, I need child care. And in the state of Missouri, the state would pay for these children to be in daycare. <laughs> so why couldn't they do that for that mother? Isn't that something? They can do that for a foster mother, but they can't do it for a mama out there busting her butt trying to do the best she can for her babies. I was a guardian at Lydon for a family of five, and um, I was involved because the youngest kept leaving. She this child, just super smart. She kept figuring out how to leave the apartment and this child was found outside in the parking lot. And so this happened twice. And so they end up filing a child need to care case. And I end up going to the home and I'm talking to the mom and guess what you all, she had someone to watch her kids. He just wasn't the best person to watch her kids, but that's who she had. And she had just moved into this area. She didn't know anyone. So he's there sleep <laughs> while the kids are doing what kids do. <laughs> right. And so she ended up getting like seven locks put on the door. I mean, it was just like, man, all she needed was support and reliable and safe childcare to care for these kids. So. And that's one of the things we see as a big problem in cases where neglect is, is it's not all, I mean, and let's be fair and honest. It's sometimes it is the fact that mom's got a, a bad meth habit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes heroin's gotten a hold of somebody yeah. and yeah. The, and they're no longer a, a real actual parent. They're a biological contributor, but not really a parent. Yeah. And that, that case is out there. But there's so many of these cases that could be pulled off of the docket. Some of these kids who could avoid the, the trauma if we just had some some reasonable help for parents as they're struggling, because let's face it in the middle of this, it, we're in the middle of the pandemic where, you know, we, we've got the the financial situation that the whole country's in right now. There are a lot of people hurting who need well, help. And Jason, realistic, realistic expectations. I remember I was in court one time and the judge made a comment. Well, you need to be able to do this by yourself. And I'm like, judge, I don't do it by myself. Like no one in the history of the world, parents, children, by themselves, we all need support. And so sometimes when these families end up in court, we we put these we put these expectations and these, you know, uh, case plans on them that no one could do this. Right. And let alone someone who's trying to fight through addiction at times. And so I don't know if, you know, it's just like we need to make sure that we're being 
practical and realistic. And quite frankly, sometimes I think that the I know that the legal system, we say that we're removing kids for a certain reason. But then once we get in there, we're adding different reasons why these kids can't come home. And so although poverty is not supposed to be a reason why kids are removed from the home, it can absolutely be a reason why kids don't return home. Poverty, being poor. And so, um, so yeah, I have lots of thoughts about that as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. We all get very opinionated, you know, and, and we're all very passionate, you know, and, and I hope that maybe there's more change on the horizon, you know, but like Jason said, uh, we're losing caseworkers left and right, yeah. you know, in a county, we've got two caseworkers and our kids are falling through the cracks. Yeah, because yeah, it was only, what, a year, year and a half ago. I never actually heard the details in the case. It hasn't come out to the public much at all yet. But it was one of the most frightening cases that I have seen. Um, there were kids chained to radiators and stuff like that going on. Um, some really, really nasty, horrible abuse. And when a, when a worker has got 20-something hotlines on their desk, how many of those situations are going un- investigated because they don't have the manpower to take care of it you know and then you have the people who who get mad and because if you've worked in the system long enough you'll know that that there are a certain number of, of investigations that get called in to, to go investigate this situation when the true story is i got mad at her so i called dfs and made up some stuff and now the caseworkers are are knee deep in trying to investigate a, a story that's just bs just so that i can get even with them and all the while, you've got these kids suffering and parents who need services more than they need somebody to come in and take kids out of their life. Yeah. I mean, the hotline, the thing about the hotline is anyone can call. And so, um, you know, someone can call if they feel like a parent is feeding their children too many hamburgers. I mean, literally, that's some of the hotlines that are received. And so, when we abuse things, <laughs> then it just makes it more difficult to really dive deep into the, the cases and the families that we really actually need to be speaking, speaking with and dealing with, which is interesting because, you know, I'm, again, super interested and focused on racial disparities in the, in the child welfare system. And you have situations where you have the exact same situation that is hotlined in, um, and one is assigned and one isn't assigned. And the only difference is race. And that's a problem, right? It, you, you're, you're willing to give um, the, another family uh, services, but for this family that has the exact same issues, we're saying, oh no, they need to come in. They need to come into care. And that's a problem. We need to make sure that we're treating our families equitably and that we're offering the same types of services to our families. That's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I have a, a guy I work with and I worked with him for quite a while. And he, uh, he said to me one day, he says, you know, I don't think racism really exists anymore. And yeah, yeah. you can't see the eye roll. <laughs> I see that you your just face. <laughs> yeah. But, and because for the listeners who, who haven't heard me describe myself before, um, I am just a big, ambiguously brown dude. Right. And I am whatever you think I am for the most part. And that, that's how I describe myself. And, and some people assume 
I'm whatever they are. And some people assume I'm not, and I'm whatever they should hate. And so when he told me that he didn't think racism exists anymore, I don't think he was prepared for what he got. Uh. I kind of felt bad because I heard later somebody say, yeah, he, he really thought you kind of jumped down his throat. And I'm like, ah, I probably kind of did because I'm like, you're a white dude with red hair who lives in rural Missouri. How much racism do you think you're going to see in this world, dude? Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. Well, and it's something we take very seriously because we are a mixed family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it's very important to us that, you know, our children are treated the way they should be treated. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the privilege of not even knowing, right. That's, that's what I call privilege, right. Not even knowing, not even having to know that there's this thing out there that is affecting everything and it's involved in all of our systems and in our policies and how families are being treated and i feel like that's that's literally the beginning acknowledgement how do we acknowledge that things aren't equal and that things aren't the way that they should be but it's really easy to acknowledge it because we have the data that shows it literally in every single state Black and brown children are in the system at nearly double the rate that they're in the population. And so it's it's not really anything in dispute. <laughs> it's right. happening. No. I mean, you're absolutely right. Our 15, 15-year-old son, he's mixed. And we've had to have conversations with him about, you know, hey, if you're in this situation, this is the way you need to respond. You need to react. If you know, if you're in a situation where the police are involved, you know, you need to make sure you're using respect. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to think about not going through people's yards, always using the sidewalk. You know, there's all kinds of conversations that we've had to have with our son just to make sure that he is safe. Yeah, because to be fair and honest, the area we live in, we're in rural Missouri. We're not in a bad area. But we have a, we have a very, um, very diverse culture here. Mm-hmm. I mean, my kids' friend groups are pretty much every shade from, you know, from Irish to, to, to black and, and somewhere in between, right. Yeah. You, you can't, you can't really nail a lot of these kids down. We have a very, very diverse area and that's great. But I work in the city of St. Louis a lot. Mm. And let me tell you, I do not like dealing with St. Louis Metro PD on the rare occasions I have, because I'm just, just dark enough that the response I get from them is not always terribly polite and or kind. And my dad was a police officer. My uncles were police officers. I've been raised around cops my whole life. I get along with them fine. I don't have any inherent bias against them. But I'm going to tell you some of the St. Louis city stuff I've dealt with over the years for things where I wasn't doing anything wrong. I wasn't even involved. I just happened to be somebody trying to drive down the street, something going on and man, the way they treat you sometimes. And, and I know these, you know, a young 15 year old boy, right. Yeah. who has a little bit of a chip on her shoulder yeah. and somebody comes at him with that kind of attitude. You're just, you're, you're about to manufacture some problems for that kid is what you're going to do. Well, and that should not be the case in our world. You know, I, I think that the word, I think that the most dangerous emotion that folks can have is fear because when people are afraid and when they're afraid of you, they begin to assume the very worst. And so yeah, like it's a it's a tough space to operate in. And it's a for for people of color, you have to have a double consciousness, right? You have to have 
you have like, you know, just who you are, but then you also have to have the, you have to understand how other people perceive you and how other people may look at you. And then you have to decide how you're going to react and respond as a result of someone thinking something about you that's not true. And that gets heavy <laughs> sometimes. Oh, <laughs> yes. Scary. Yeah. Well, yeah. And to place that upon a kid's shoulders. Yep. When they've already got so much more there already. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I wasn't that awful young. I was just a few years out of the army and Amanda and I were were um in a little downtown area down here by the courthouse one day and some old guy thought we had taken his parking spot. Crusty old white guy and well, we were going to your father's wedding. That's right. Yeah. And I mean so we're, we're in good spirits. We're going to we're going to a, to a happy up. occasion and the guy pulls up beside me and rolls a window down and be, starts yelling at me and telling me to go back to my own country. Now, mind you, I am only is, a, like less than a year and a half out of the military. Yeah, I am still in front full. of our children. Yeah. And I'm still full of vinegar, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I'm ready to, uh, and about, I was about three steps into heading to, towards his car. I wanted to go pull the guy out of the wing vent and explain to him why he shouldn't talk that way in front of mm-hmm. my kids. When thankfully he, he found the, the better pedal to push and <laughs> he hit the one that made his tires squeal and went off. But you know, that that's, that's a world that, that people get drawn into. And I was in my early twenties. Yeah. And had that happened when I was 16 or 17, I, I probably would have been moving faster in his direction, right? Like mm-hmm. I had that, that just enough in me to stop from doing something stupid that day. Yeah. If you take a kid who's, who's maybe in care, maybe been through some real severe trauma, who doesn't have that ability to really self-regulate when those things happen, their amygdala gets spiked and, and the fear steps in and no impulse control. And, yeah. and suddenly they're the ones going to jail. Yep. Yep. For how, for how they responded. Yep. Mm-hmm. For how they responded. Because of past traumas. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, it's, I mean, it's a story that has been written so too many times, too many times. And so just like, you know, and I mean, that's just a whole nother piece, but the, the experiences that are, that our kids have, um, man, they can be, they can be so heavy. And it's like, how are we preparing them, especially kids in foster care, right? How are we preparing them for that emotional regulation, that, that, that stopping and thinking before that split second, because just a moment can change their lives forever, change their lives forever. Doesn't speak to who they are, but in that moment, it changes everything. Right. And some things you can't go back from. Yep. Yeah, you don't get to do over on some of that stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm, a, I'm in a dad's group and, and I lead a group of guys a couple of times, uh, actually a couple of different groups every week through, through a lot of content and things like that. Um, work with them on a lot of stuff going on in their lives. And I have, I have more times than I can count walked through that whole idea with them of learning how to stop in that moment when their amygdala gets spiked, when they're, when the kids are making them crazy, when their wife is, is making them crazy. Not that I know anything about that. Cause my wife is all. amazing <laughs> and she knows where the guns are, but, <laughs> yes, I do. but you know, I, I'm teaching grown men, sometimes 30, 40, 50 years old, how to, how to realize what's going on in that moment. How can we expect a 17 year old kid to do that? You know, and it's something because it's like people don't even realize like that there is a physiological response that we have. You know, we say sometimes, oh, I got so hot. Literally, when you get upset, you get hot, like your body temperature begins to to raise. And it's like teaching kids and adults how to pay attention to those things that, oh, you're about to go off and you need to 
you need to bring it down. A slow answer, right? Turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. Um, it's true. <laughs> you, we yes, should not it is. Be so quick to respond. We have to take a moment to really think and, and digest that thing. So, yeah. I think I read that one just the other morning in Proverbs. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. <laughs> full, full of wisdom. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to bring it back to me. God must be trying to say something to me there. <laughs> There's a lesson for you. Yes. Funny. Yes, there is. And, and uh, that's, you know, I, I don't, I don't tend to take our podcast towards a terribly religious um, direction too often because, well, quite honestly, because I believe most religion is man-made and, and the whole idea of uh, spirituality and, and, and having a relationship with God, I don't think that's something that is terribly um, understood inside of the quote unquote religious world that we live in usually. And so I try not to, I, I'm not chasing down, you know, to, to talk good or bad about the Catholics or the Baptists or anybody else, except for maybe the group that I grew up with. I've been accused of talking bad about them, but that's a whole different story. I'll leave alone. Working story. I was like, Oof. <laughs> there's some stuff yeah. in there. <laughs> My mom is not happy with me about that one. Oh. Yeah. She's still a member of that, of that group. She, you know, she believes in, I mean, I, I give her credit. She believes in what she believes in. And, yeah. and that's, you know, that's good for her. But you know, when we, when we just take strip away all the denomination, all the, the all that history stuff out of it and just look at that story. Mm-hmm. I mean, that story is the story that we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. It's about being adopted into a family. Yeah. It's about learning how to, how to set aside all of your problems and, and create a community of people who, who are around one another, who actually care for one another, love each other and treat them that way. And, you know, even if you look back into some of those old Bible stories, you know, we, you, you don't see the racism in there unless you understand the, you know, the, the history. And mm-hmm. I mean, the Jews were not, were not great friends with the, the other folks and those other folks weren't real good friends with them. As I recall reading that story. <laughs> There's some stuff in there. There's some, definitely some stuff in there. Um, but you bring out a great point. I mean, when you, when you strip it down, it is a bar. It, it is about being a part of something. It is about being a part of something, and being a part of a community, and folks feeling supported, and um, like you always have some place to go. Because I think that the the reason why people feel hopeless is because they don't have enough connections. They don't have enough folks around them who love them and support them, telling them the age of wisdom of just keep living, right? Live to see another day. It's going to get better. And so that hope and that understanding that you're here for a reason and that it's not just about you, it has to be about someone else and how you can can contribute and build someone else up as well. You know, I'm going to steal a line from a buddy of mine, Jeremy Roadruck, and, and we interviewed him Oh, probably last year sometime back. Yeah. But, uh, Jeremy's part of the same dad's group I'm in. And and that dude is, he drops some, some wisdom in there from time to time. And some of it, I can't help but share, you know, I think in building this community piece, you know, Jeremy talks about this in in interpersonal relationships a lot, Mm -hmm. but you first have to make certain that the other person feels seen, felt, heard, understood, and appreciated Mm -hmm. before they can be supported. Yeah. And that's what he talks about, you know, the six golden tickets, you know, so understanding how to make these other people feel seen, felt, heard, understood and appreciated so that they cannot be the other people anymore. Yeah. So that regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of your of your racial makeup, you know, I have done the 23 and me test. There's not another one like me out there, apparently. <laughs> 
because <laughs> it, it just had a long list of things and it just had it said yes to all of them i think wow yeah i think the only thing i don't have in me is is any asian influences other than that i pretty much it was a yes there's not anybody else out there that they can be just you know part of my group i don't even know who i'm supposed to be racist against if i'm supposed to be racist right so let's just <laughs> let's just create a group of people that that just care for each other regardless of of what your dna markers happen to say i think it's a pretty crazy thing that we choose to separate on our dna markers but yeah. uh, but it's like it's everywhere though and it is. um i was i was kind of doing some some different research just about like implicit bias and how it how it colors our lens and it really does like it's the media it's you know the things that we say or the things that we don't say right how sometimes in some families they don't even talk about race they don't even they don't even you just kind of act like it doesn't exist well usually in families of color you don't have that luxury you have to acknowledge it because your child comes home one day like mine did and says i'm i have the darkest skin in my classroom right and so now we're having a conversation about yeah, and God made you that way and you're beautiful, right? And so um, not even like talking about it, but knowing that children see race, they really do. And there's like these different studies, um, they see they see color. And so, but if we act as if it doesn't exist, if we make it this taboo subject, and then they then turn in turn believe that, oh, this isn't, this isn't something that I can talk about or understand. Um, but what works is relationships. And when people have connections with people who don't look like them and are exposed to other cultures, um, then that's what changes people. Yeah. We, in our house is kind of a microchasm of that, you know, while our turtle snuck in here a little bit ago, you saw him sneak by, but turtles has raised or mixed, um, mixed heritage. And now we have our little guy, Twitch, who makes Amanda look tan. <laughs> and she, her main name is McClanahan, so you know there's some there's some fair skin in there, right? And, and these two, a wee bit Irish. These two are are our brothers through and through, and it's one of the most interesting conversations I had to have was talking with my son to tell him, you know, well, yes, I, I understand, you know, the difference in the color and all that, but you know, this is the way God made you, and you know, this is who He wanted you to be, and and that was with the fair skinned one because he was upset that that his brother was darker than him. He wanted to be like that, and I I look at it and go, yeah, these these kids see differences, yeah. They do. I think they, they apply the lens of what's better or, you know, more desirable through their own, you know, through their own kid kid thing. It's it doesn't have so much to do with the way that adults tend to to color them. Well, I mean, even like our daughter, our daughter's 13 and a while back, you know, she came to me with a conversation, a question, and she says, Mom, you know, I know I'm not dating right now. But in the future, you know, what what does this look like for me? Am I allowed to date a white guy or do I date a black guy? Am I only allowed to date mixed guys? Wow. You know, she was very uncertain about, you know, where she should land on this. And, you know, we talked about it and, you know, I simply told her that, you know, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, you need to date somebody who's going to treat you, you. with respect and dignity. It doesn't matter color. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter race. It's about finding someone who who's going to be good to you. Yeah. yeah you tell her to date somebody whose dad's not going to have to hurt. <laughs> and I said, thank goodness you have a lot of brothers. They'll keep somebody in line. Yeah. You know, so this reminds me of a, a test that was actually done. Um, so there's this case called Brown v. Board of uh, Education. And it's the test or it's the case that said that separate is not 
equal. So it's the it's the case, the Supreme Court case that said, okay, black and brown and white and yellow and it, all the kids can now go to school together. Okay, so that was this case. Uh, that was this case. And so what really I think helped to convince the Supreme Court is there were these parapsychologists and they did this test. It's called the doll test. And so they had a room with a black doll and a white doll and they had children to come into the room and they asked, they would ask the children, which doll is good? Which doll is bad? And what they found is that the black children all of them, most of them would come in and say that the white doll was good and that the black doll was bad. And so then when they asked them, well, what color are you? Which doll are you? And they would say, you know, that they were the black doll and they would leave the room crying and so upset because the the blackness was bad and, and that's who they were. And so they in turn were bad. And so the psychological effects of segregation, whether it's man-made or whether we're just doing it, right? They say on Sundays it's the most segregated day of the of the week, right? Folks are uh, at their at their respective churches or whatnot. But however, however we're doing it, it matters. And it kids see that and it impacts them. And so just that test, that psychological test was enough for the Supreme Court to say separate is not equal. Like our kids need to be going to school together and they need to be around one another um, because it is impacting how they're seeing each other and how they're seeing themselves. So I thought that that was a pretty powerful test that was done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, it's interesting, you know, if you, if you go back across history, there, there's always been some group of people who are segregating themselves from some other group of people. And it's not always been on based on, on skin color. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was in the military, I was a linguist. Uh, I was a Korean linguist mm-hmm. and I learned something interesting. Um, when you're sitting in the room or I'm sitting in the room with a Korean man and a, and a Japanese man, they're Asian brothers. If we walk out of the room though, the racism there is, is deep. Wow. It's deep. And it goes all the way back to to when Japan occupied Korea, when some of the soldiers were were there doing some of the horrible things that happened in that in that conflict, and it, it runs all the way back there. If you go down to um, d- down and look at the the tribes of the the what is it the Hutus and the Tutsis, you know they're, they're both black tribes from Africa, I believe sub-Saharan somewhere. I forget the actual country they're from, but they're both from that from a very similar area. They're neighbors. Mm-hmm. But there is some very subtle differences that you and I most likely would not be able to pick out between them that that they just have in certain looks and the racism between those those groups of people are is very deep. It's something that seems to be in us that we feel the need to segregate and separate ourselves from others so that we can have the good people that, with us mm. and the bad people over there. And it's something that's lasted for for centuries and centuries as long as man is willing to propagate it. Yeah. But if you take these kids and you take these young kids and you put a bunch of them together and they don't look the same mm-hmm. and you don't tell them they're supposed to be mad at one another because of the way the other one looks, mm-hmm. they get along wonderfully. Absolutely. 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 Um, it's something though, because again, that relationship, it's so, it's so imperative and it's so important. And I think, um, you know, foster parents just in concern of their your role and where you all sit just within the system can really have such an impactful, like your voice can be a voice that can carry a lot of weight, especially in certain 
in certain courtrooms and with certain um, with certain judges, with certain caseworkers. I have seen foster parents who have said, this family shouldn't be here. Like all they needed was services. <laughs> this family really shouldn't be here. Um, and it's made a difference in cases. And so, again, it's like the acknowledgement, understanding that that we all play a role and sometimes the system gets it wrong. Sometimes it gets it right, but sometimes it gets it wrong. And so how from where we sit, are we able to influence um, those wrong decisions um, and advocate for families? Well, absolutely. I mean, our our main goal is to, you know, help the child that's come into our care. But by helping that child, we need to be helping their parents too. That that's part of the key, yep. you know, and sometimes people forget that Yeah, they get so focused on this child, this child, you know, and then it becomes, well, this is my child, my child, my child. And the biological family is not getting the services that they need to heal and to rebuild and get their children back. But it, it's our job as foster parents to help be supportive of them too. You know, helping them the best to our ability, you know, do they need a ride for something? You know, can we, what can we do? You know? Yeah. I love that you said that because that's not the thought process of, of some folks. And I think a part of it is fear, like just afraid of, of this other, right. This other parent who, whose child was taken. I like to say that I don't think you can love someone completely if you don't love what they love. And that child, good, bad, ugly, they love those parents. Um, and I mean, if we're looking for unconditional love, just look at kids in foster care, like they love their parents. And so um, the fact that you recognize that you have a role to play and you can build relationships, right? You can build relationships and it can be long lasting and impactful with these families. Oh yeah, that's that's one of the things um... If we go back to, I'm going to keep plugging old episodes here. Um, Hope for Amy. Mm. When we first started, you know, we did a couple multi-part series and, and that was one, it was a, a three-part series, if I remember right. And she told the story about how, you know, she came into it when, when it kicked her front door in mm. and put her and her husband, her kids on the ground at gunpoint, um, wow. they found roughly $10,000 worth of meth in her pocket, I'm guessing. I don't know, street value changes. I forget how much it was. I remember it was, it was a healthy amount. It was packaged up for redistribution. And she told the story. She was a full-blown dealer. Mm. And she started into that journey. And they put, they put her kids with a family member who really was, was angry with her mm. for where she was at. And she hated everybody and everything in the system to start. And it wasn't until she realized that some of the people in this system, not all of them, but some of these people were really trying to help her. And some of the caseworkers were really trying to help her. And um, it's probably been four years now. She's been clean and she has her kids back with her. I see her on a, I see her post on Facebook every now and then, you know, a picture of a kid at a birthday party or something like that, but she's turned her life around, but it took those handful of people who are willing to hold her to account, yeah, but still walk her through that hard place so that she could get to the other side and, and be the parent of the kids and not the woman who lost her kids. When I was in private practice, I, um, 
I, what I saw was a lot of parents coming into the system angry, but really scared because they didn't know how to navigate it. And they didn't really see a path to get their kids back. And so I went to the judges and I said, hey, I want to create this class. And they said, go for it. So I created this like orientation class for parents um, who had had their children removed so that they could understand how to navigate the system. And I did this for five years. I didn't charge anything. It was a labor of love. But I'll tell you what, every single parent that would come through, they would be upset. They would be irritated. They were mad at me because the judge, the court had ordered for them to take it. By the time they left, they were like, thank you. Thank you because I now understand how to get my kids back, right? I now understand that this is doable, that I can, if I do these things, if I navigate the system, if I talk to these people, then I can get my kids back. And so, um, yeah, I, I believe, and I know for sure that we have to do a better job of supporting parents who are who are navigating this thing. But there are some parents who don't want their kids back. <laughs> so let's just be clear. Like, there are, <laughs> I would literally have clients who would say, Nope, don't want them. Like, I want to sign my rights away. And I would have some parents who just love something else more, right? So whether it was that man who was addicted to meth or whether it was the meth or whatever, whatever it was, they had a they had a higher love. And that was going to be what they were going to focus on during that time. But there are absolutely parents who were like, I want my kids back, but I'm angry. I'm hurt. I don't understand how I got here and I need help. Yeah, I think um, the the gal I mentioned earlier, Tamara, was an ex- a great example of that. Yeah, she was busting her butt just trying to take care of her family, and because of a, a romantic relationship, it all kind of went a bit sideways. Mm-hmm. And she ended up, you know, she fought to get her kids back, and she did it. She got her kids back, and her kids. She tells her kids stories, and they're successful, and they've been through a lot together, and they've grown. But you know, most people don't have that knowledge of how to navigate the system. You know, even when we talked to Amy, she told us about how basically everybody she knew whose kids were taken away, they never got them back. Mm. Wow. Didn't think there was a way to do it. But it's possible. It's possible. Again, support, connections, understanding that you can do this, that there's hope. It's so important. Yeah. I, I love the idea of creating a, a course that, that the, court mandates for them to go through to understand how that works because so many people just don't believe that it's possible and and whether that's you know based on on a a racial problem in an area you know i mean everybody knows the name mike brown right Mm -hmm. you know that was not that far from us i'm in that town almost on a on a at least weekly basis if not daily you know i go through there all the time and a friend of mine who I see quite a bit up there, um, you know, she has even talked about the judge that was involved in that case. And she's like, oh, I, I don't like that man. Wow. You know, she she told me, you know, she's she'd been to court up there for like traffic tickets or something silly, parking tickets. And the guy was was just apparently not a very good judge. He was um, very racially motivated in a lot of things he did. And I can see where when that's the, the world you live in, when that's your baseline. And then you have something like this happen. Yeah. Your first instinct is, well, I can't get them back. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah, people need that. They need that. They need that support. They need that hope. They need that. They need to understand how to navigate it. And 
I, I tell people all the time, it's confusing for people in the system. <laughs> okay. You can ask somebody something and they'll tell you something different. And it's because you have the legal process, you have the social process. Sometimes you can have a criminal case going on. Um, and then you can have an administrative process going on. And so it's like all these different systems, people want different things. Uh, it, it, it can be overwhelming. And I think that's the word it's overwhelming for parents and they, they go to their, um, what is the word? They 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 just kind of zone out and their coping mechanisms, which may be unhealthy, right? Sometimes they indulge even more in that. So, absolutely, yeah. It's you, you're you got that hit right on the head. The uh, the coping mechanisms are the ones that that most of us don't have figured out for those high stress situations. You know, yeah. I, I don't think most of us are wired to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, I guess the last thing that I would say is, or what I would say is that it's so, it's so important for people to do the work, like to have the to have the the baseline understanding of what is happening with 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 the child of color or with someone who's involved in the system, like the trauma that they may be experiencing or the different experiences that you may have never experienced, but that doesn't mean that it's not happening. And so just listening to books and podcasts and just educating ourselves on the realities that our kids are facing, I think is so important. Um, And it can provide that empathy um, that we need for the parents and for the kids and just for folks who are involved in the system. Yes. Because if we're all going to do it right, we're supposed to be all kind of aiming for the same goal, right? Yeah. Reunification is supposed to be our goal. Yep. It is. I don't know that everybody that I meet on a daily basis in this world remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So that, yeah, that's a, that's one of the things that, that, bothers me a little bit. And and to be fair, I'm, I'm certain I've been guilty of that, especially when we first started, it's really easy to look at that fall or at the biological parent and see them as that other, regardless of racial makeup or socioeconomic, you know, Oh no, I heard this story about yeah. how, you know, this mom did this thing. So you're this horrible human. Yeah. And you know, to some extent I am protecting the kid from you. Yeah. We demonize. We're very quick to demonize. We hear, you know, good. Oh yeah. Good story. And it's easy. It's so easy to do. I don't know. I don't know, you know, uh, looking back, like when I first started, if I had the right perspective either, but it's like the longer that you keep living, <laughs> you realize, whew, um, it's just so important to have grace and mercy and just to understand that people make, people can make really bad decisions, um, maybe because they've, they've experienced that themselves. And, and, you know, there's all, I think that there's always a reason for people making some of the decisions that they've made, but I always, I would always say in court, judge, why are we here? Like, if we don't believe that people have the capacity to change, why are we doing this? Like, it's literally a waste of time. And so a part of my work is knowing that people can change and people can do better if they want to, if they want to. Yes. Yes, that's true. But they have to want to. And sometimes that's the part of this that is the hardest when you have a kid who deserves so much more and, and a parent doesn't really want to. Yep. I agree. You know, 
if you go all the way back to K&A story, which we, we still haven't told that story on here, have we? No, we have not. Okay. Yeah. But, but, um, sometimes I think we just put it off because it's, that's yeah, that's it's a, a good one, but yeah. Yeah. It's good, but it's painful. Right. Mm-hmm. But you know, his, uh, the kid's mother, um, at one point she asked if she could just sign away her rights to him. He just, she just wanted her, her daughter back. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, like that's pretty easy to demonize that person. Right. But it happens all they always pick, you know, they have a, sometimes parents have a favorite <laughs> that they want to do. It. It's something. Yeah. You see it all. <laughs> yes, you yes, you do. And unfortunately we don't have the ability to, uh, to, to change that or to prevent any of it from happening because it's, been my experience that you know hurt people hurt people yep and so when you have these hurt kids a lot of times it's just a reflection of where they came from i agree and until we learn how to fix that and all humans at once Hmm. we're gonna have to keep going on (laughs) all humans at once huh that's a pretty lofty goal huh that's that's a big goal (laughs) that's a big goal but i think you speak to an interesting point in that sometimes i think if we think of things in that regard, it can be so overwhelming. <laughs> but For sure. If, if we just take it just one one decision at a time, one moment at a time, it feels more attainable. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's one of those God-sized goals. And I'm reminded on a regular basis that I am not God. So <laughs> sounds like something you would say, Amanda. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> she Most might have definitely. reminded me once or twice. <laughs> I might have needed to be reminded, but that's a different story. <laughs> so um I know that we talked a little bit before we start here and um you know, kind of jump track here before we run out of time, but you told me that you have a book that you you've got out there now too. I do. So I released a book. It's called Bible Study Perspectives, Genesis and Um, I I wrote the book because I believe that um, God's word in the Bible, that we're able to see it in everything. And for me, right, faith is the thing that connects my entire life. Uh, You mentioned, you know, my bio is very long, right? I'm a a lawyer, author, speaker, administrator. I'm a pastor's wife. I'm an elected official's wife. We have four kids. There's lots of things that we're doing. But I think in that, I see things differently and I see many different perspectives. And um, we were just talking about Proverbs. It's full of wisdom, right? It's full of, man, if folks could just grab a hold to some of these principles, to these principles, then we could we could live our life in a way um, that is um that is not about us, but about how we can help that next person. And so, for example, I take, I break it down. So I take very small chunks of something and I examine it through movies. I examine it through something that I love, like family. I examine it through something that's important, like um, a cultural perspective um, and something that I respect such as the law. And so there's 10 perspectives. And uh, the first perspective I'm talking about, Adam and Adam and Eve, and I see it as they were evicted, right? So I'm talking, so when I'm talking about them being evicted because of the uh, decision that they made, I'm also talking about, man, but what was their, how can we establish paths of restoration for when someone messes up, right? What is the path to get them back to where they need to be? And so we know that for instance, in Genesis, the original plan was for 
them not to eat from that fruit, but for them to uh, to eat from the from from a different tree. They chose differently. And so God had to create a different plan. And so just in our own experiences, when someone messes up, how are we creating pathways for restoration within our own families? Um, The cultural perspective, for example, I'm talking about um, redlining. So redlining is when um, families who were poor, immigrants, and Black families were kept out of neighborhoods, right? They couldn't uh, live in certain neighborhoods. And so, you know, with Adam and Eve, it's they were kicked out. But with redlining, folks were kept out. And that affected generational wealth and um, uh, environmental issues. And so it's like it's so you can't see it of course we're on the podcast but it's it's thin but it's power packed there's so many different aspects and perspectives that we can all connect our lives to yeah i love the the line you use pathways of restoration i mean my goodness that that's not what the whole story is about not what the story of most of what we do is is kind of a microchasm of that right it is <laughs> it is i mean to to restore a family back to the way that it was originally came into this world as was would be it's kind of our loftiest goal when it comes yeah. to foster care it is it is sometimes uh, it feels a bit more lofty than what we're able to manage but mm-hmm. but it should be our, our ultimate goal to be able to restore that family so that they can go out and have that peace and and deal away with that trauma in their lives and work their way through it and we can create a better world and and you know what i bet you the kids who do walk that path and end up in that restored relationship probably are more likely to go out and be amazing humans when they get older because of what they came through. Oh yeah. Yeah. Their health outcomes are better. Yeah, absolutely. When, when kids leave with connections from the system, it matters and it impacts them after foster care. So yeah, you're right. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Did you have any other questions, Amanda? No, I think think it's summed up pretty well. (laughs) All right. Is there anything else you wanted to get in here before we shut this down? Just wanted to say thank you all so much for having me and um, great conversation surrounding just relationships and racial equity and restoration and just the role of different foster parents. And so um, I definitely appreciate the time and space that you all have, have allowed. Well, and thank you for taking the time to come and share your story with us, too, and all of our listeners. Absolutely. Okay, Foster Care Nation. Thank you for listening to Chanel's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. Don't forget, we have a Patreon where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything are in the show notes or on your podcast player. Or you can find it at fostercarenation.com. And as always... You are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Oh, go, go, go. Yeah, yeah.